Uh, the category today is Lords. It's the word for the day. I'm, I did, it's kind of like Jeopardy, but it's not Jeopardy. Here's the first question. Lord Voldemort is the arch enemy of Harry Potter. Which name below is not used in the books to refer to as Voldemort? A, you know who. B, he who must not be named. C, the Dark Lord. And D, the guy who needs a nose job. All right, you Harry Potter fans, obviously you picked it up easily. The first three are all ones he's referred to in the book. Um, he's not the guy who needs a nose job, although he is. I've seen pictures. All right. Next one. Who actually is the Lord of the Rings? Have you ever thought about that question? All right. Wikipedia tells us. Uh, A, Frodo. B, Sam. C, Sauron. D, Bilbo Baggins. And E, Rudy. You get the Rudy joke there? If you don't get it, ask somebody next to you. All right. Answer on this one. C, Sauron. He's the one who made, uh, if I read it, all, read it all correctly, he made the rings. He's the Lord of the Rings. Somebody might debate me on that. We'll do that afterwards. All right. House of Lords is the upper house of parliament in the United Kingdom. The lower house is called A, the basement. B, the house of lower lords. C, the house of commons. D, the house of Windsor. And E, the house of Lord wannabes. All right. It would be the house of commons. The house of lords are actually appointed. They're not elected. And there's like 26 spiritual lords who are representatives of the Church of England. And most of the other House of Lord positions are hereditary, passed down kind of thing. So anyway, we don't have that in our country. Next one on Lords. 1954, a novel about a group of British boys stuck on an uninhabited island who try to govern themselves with disastrous results. A, the Lord of the Island, Lord of all boys, Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Fly Swatter. All right, correct answer if you know this book, Lord of the Flies. All right. Lords, next question. 1970, which musician and former Beatle released the chart-topping song, My Sweet Lord. A, Ringo Starr, George Harrison, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, or Beatle Bailey. Who knows this one, actually? Who, who, who sang that song? I think it was George Harrison. Correct song, George Harrison. Remember the song? It was like, uh, My Sweet Lord, that kind of. Next one, all right. Who is George Harrison singing about in his song? My Sweet Lord. Buddha, Allah, Jesus, Krishna, or Beatle Bailey. Anybody know that one? Well, who's he singing about? Hare Krishna. That's in the song. And what's interesting in that song, it's my sweet Lord. I used to listen to the radio when I was younger. I still do, but that was always my hand. Hare Krishna. And then he goes, hallelujah. Hare hallelujah is Jewish, literally meaning Hebrew, praise to Yahweh. And it was George Harrison's attempt to say all religions lead to the same place. So we can sing to Hare Krishna, we can sing hallelujah to the Jewish God. And interesting, that was a very popular song and a chart-topping song there, but he was singing it to Krishna, um, which I'm assuming at that time of his life he must have been um, somehow connected to the Hindu religion and Hindu God Krishna. Next one, this is the topic of the day. What exactly and practically do you and I mean when we say that Jesus is Lord? And I don't have the answers given there because that's the only thing you can answer for yourself. When I say Jesus is Lord, actually it was the earliest, and we'll talk about this today, it was the earliest creed of the church. Now we have the Apostles' Creed and this creed and that creed, and I believe this. The earliest creed of the church was simply the one-line statement, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? How does it affect my life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Is it just saying, is Jesus is Lord the same thing as saying is Christianity is right? Or when I say Jesus is Lord, or you say Jesus is Lord, what are the clear 
and perhaps even dangerous implications on that statement for my life or your life. What we've been looking at this last couple months is the book of Philippians and uh, calling it Living a Life of Abnormal Joy. Because Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, was where when he wrote the book? Jail, prison, all right, not a joyful place. Most people think he was in Rome when he wrote the letter. Philippi is a city in what was then ancient Greece, but it was under Roman rule. Um, On the upper left there, I've said this before, it's a copy of the oldest uh, existing copy we have of the book of Philippians. Um, that it, not, not the original, of course. We have none of the originals of the Old Testament, of Old or New Testament writings, but we have multiple, multiple copies. Side note, um, the textual evidence for the v- validity historically of the Bible exceeds any other book in history. So just to kind of, there's a whole science and a whole domain of studying ancient manuscripts. But the, ch- the challenge is, how do we get what Paul said to them then in Philippi to us now on Kirkwood? How does Philippi translate to Kirkwood? And how does this or abnormal joy that Paul talks about um, become part of who we are? Because this letter he wrote to the church in Philippi used the word joy an unusual number of times, given especially Paul's circumstance, given especially their circumstance, which was they were most, most, uh, most of them were experiencing some degree of persecution. Not persecution simply like they were getting bad looks from people. There was actually physical ramifications for them saying, Jesus is Lord and following Jesus. So Paul's writing them this letter as the Holy Spirit now brings it to us and saying, how do you live in a world that is hostile to the reality and the statement of Jesus is Lord? How do you live that way? How do you live joyfully? How do you not be a jerk when you say that? How do you not be embarrassed when you say that? How do you live joyfully knowing that Jesus is not just Lord of my life, he's Lord of all? How do you do that? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to just read the passage, this part of Philippians 2. Go to the next slide here. And we're going to talk about, this is the second part of the chapter, where Paul talks about, and he's focusing on Jesus. And again, we're the overarching question, which we'll ask today is, what does that mean to say that Jesus is Lord? And is it arrogant to say that? In, in, a, in a world where all these, especially in Bloomington, Indiana, where all the world religions line up and cry for a voice as well, can we say that? Should we say that? Should we apologize about that? Should we say it in 10-point font instead of 24-point font? Here's what Paul says. This is just the whole chapter, but the focus in the last part. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, of any comfort from his love? Is there any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Keep in mind, too, there was some degree of conflict happening among that small congregation in Philippi, which is not unlike happens in many, many churches, including this one around the world throughout history. It's just the nature of what's happening. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. We talked about that last week with the power of humility and what that actually looks like and what it doesn't mean, but what it does mean. Don't look out for your own interests, but also take an interest in others also, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Then Paul goes into this poem. Some think it was an ancient hymn. We're not really sure, but he clearly is some kind of poetic uh, worship of Jesus. Though he was God, talking about Jesus, he did not uh, think of equality with God something to be, something to cling to. Even that opening statement, though he was God, we believe that Jesus is God showing himself to us. He's not simply 
a really good man is not simply somebody who just did good things on behalf of God. We believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is God showing himself to us. So Paul affirms that though he was God, didn't think of equality with God, something to cling to, didn't claim his rights. As we often want to say, well, I have a right to do this. He's like, no, I have a right to be certain things, but he didn't hold on to those. Instead, he emptied himself. He let go of those rights for us. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor. The word there is literally kind of, uh, kind of like hyper-elevation, like he, God put him up at the highest place, hyper. The, actually, the Greek word actually has the word hyper in it. God hyper-elevated Jesus to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all their names. Here, too. It's not that, okay, Jesus was some kind of subpar being, and because he did this, God then gave him Godhead, Godness. It's simply saying that this is the position that God's always given him. And he has that position because of what he did, because what he did is what God is like. What God is like is he, give, he abandons himself for the sake of his people. That's what God is like. So Jesus was simply showing us what God is like. It wasn't like he had to earn this extra stripes on his sleeve, and all of a sudden God's like, now Jesus, now you have Godness. He always was that, and he always was in that place. And so we're, we're kind of having to think through the boundaries of time in a sense, but Jesus always had that place. And so the sense here is not that he earned it, but the sense is he did that because that's what God does. He gives, he empties himself for his people. He gave him the name above all their names, the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Now, just on that phrase here, that every knee should bow. The question I ask when I read this passage, maybe you do too, is, okay, every knee? I think in extremes, Adolf Hitler? Is he going to bow? Is he going to bow with a sword to his neck? What does it mean? I assume that every means every. And whether they bow out of adoration or bow out of acknowledgement of the truth, lacking adoration, I think every, what Scripture teaches is every single being will bow without choice. Although many of us by choice will do so because we acknowledge that. So it seems like Paul, not doesn't seem like, Paul is clearly saying this is Jesus up here among every other God. There's no one like him. Because every tongue declared that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. In those days, what was said, because again, Philippi was a Greek city in the Roman Empire, what was a common statement is Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. That was the creed you had to affirm. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is in charge. So to say Jesus is Lord, again, Paul's writing to people who are being persecuted. Paul himself is in prison because he affirms that creed. And he's saying, no, Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, not anyone else, not any part of you. You're not Lord of your own life as much as we think we are. Jesus is Lord. And so Paul in this passage is putting Jesus way up to the top. And even when we talk, look at some things next week, we'll see how when we acknowledge we have one common, kind of, kind of, common Lord who has that position and only that position, it affects how we relate to one another. 
But right now, I think this week we're going to talk about how we relate to that this person, Jesus. Um, so look at this phrase, Jesus is Lord. Go to the next slide. Simple definition, dictionary.com. Lord, one who has legitimate power and authority, an owner or a master. I mean, we talked about House of Lords and Lord Voldemort and Lord of the Rings and yes, my Lord, no, my Lord. And we often say Jesus is Lord. We sing songs about Jesus is Lord. The word Lord, whether it's in the Greek in the New Testament or the Hebrew version of that in the Old Testament, it occurs thousands of times in the Bible. But what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? Am I saying then legitimately Jesus has power and authority? He's an owner and a master. Is he just a master of the universe, or is there some kind of personal acknowledgement I have to say there? So go to the next slide here. Let me read from Isaiah chapter 45, because one of the things that struck me about this passage is the exclusive, exclusive claim that Jesus is Lord and him alone and I want you to hear this in this way. Not, I don't want you to hear it in the sense of Jesus is Lord, so we're right. I want you to hear it in the sense of Jesus is Lord, there is no one else. And what do I need to do about that? Not, we're not trying to prove our rightness. We're trying to say, if he is my Lord, what do I do? So let me read from Isaiah chapter 45. Because this passage that Paul quoted, where he says, every knee shall bow, comes from Isaiah chapter 45, where God is talking about himself. And you'll hear here in a second how God is, and I say this reverently, he's obsessed with letting us know there's nobody else but him. One, he's it. And this is actually Isaiah, he's actually writing to a King Cyrus who was not even a Jew, but he was uh, somebody that God empowered. But this is what God says. So you just, he says, this is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one. So Cyrus was not even a Jew, wasn't even a quote-unquote Christian. There weren't Christians then, but you know what I mean. His right hand he will empower. Before him mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. He's talking about Cyrus. Their fortress gates will be opened and never to shut again because this is what the Lord says. This is God saying this about himself. Then later on he says, I will do this so you may know that I am the Lord. Later on in the same chapter, I am the Lord, there is no other God. A few verses later, there is no other God. I am the Lord and there is no other. It's like God can't get off that, can he? There is no other, no other, no other. Later on, I, the Lord, created them. Later on, this is all in the same chapter. This is what the Lord says, I am the Lord of heaven army, and I have spoken. God is with you, and he is the only God. There is no other. For the Lord is God. He created the heavens and the earth. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. I'm not repeating verses. I'm just going through the psalm, because God keeps saying, I am the Lord, there is no other. I am the Lord, there is no other. I, the Lord, speak only what is true and declare only what is right. And then I'll just read the last handful of verses, starting with 21 of Isaiah 45, where again, Paul referred to this in his writing to the Philippians. They would have known about that because they knew the Old Testament scriptures. So they knew what Paul was referring to. God says this, Was it not I the Lord, for there is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior, there is none but me. I mean, I said God can't get off that. Let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by my own name and I have spoken the truth. I will never go back on my word. 
Every knee will bend to me and every tongue will confess allegiance to me. The people will declare the Lord is the source of all my righteousness and strength. And all who were angry with him will come to him and be ashamed. In the Lord, all the generations of Israel will be justified and in him they will boast. So just this sense of Jesus is Lord and there is no other. And again, I'm not saying compare that to, well, yeah, Jesus is Lord and Buddha is not, Krishna is not. Muhammad's not. That's true. It's clearly one of the implications of this passage. That we don't live in this. The Bible, at least, doesn't allow us to believe that Jesus is one guy among many gods. He's elevated. Clearly, I am the Lord, there is no other. He is the Lord, there is no other. So yes, that's true. But I'm asking you to ask the question about you and who is your Lord. And you might say, well, of course, Jesus is my Lord, but let me, let me ask the question first. Because I wonder sometimes if I can, I say that, but I don't know to what degree. Because if I say Jesus is Lord, go to this next, go to this next one there, the next one after this. So I'm really saying Jesus is my Lord. He's my rightful owner. He's my exclusive master. Masters and owners have a right. They don't have a right. They, have, they do have a right to tell me how to live my life. So sometimes when we say Jesus is Lord, what we really mean down deep inside is Jesus is my spiritual advisor, and I can take or leave his advice based on my knowledge of my life situation. Or Jesus is my friend, and I can take a friend's advice and input, but I'm not bound to it. Or Jesus is my, even you could say Jesus is my leader, but sometimes we don't always do what our leaders tell us to do. I mean, we're Americans. We don't, we're like that, right? Jesus is not your president. He's not your BFF. I mean, he's all those things. I'm not saying. But the Bible clearly says he's the Lord. He's your master. He's your owner. And that means something when I say that. Because if I say Jesus is Lord, he's Lord over your bank account? College students, yeah, but what's a bank account? I don't have anything, right? He's Lord over your bank account. How you spend your money is his decision. Not that we're lockstep robots, but he's Lord. He is master and owner. He's given us stewardship of those, of our resources we have financially. But he is the Lord of every paycheck you get and every dollar you spend. Jesus is the Lord of your future, which in some degrees gives us confidence that I don't need to be worked up or worried about what happens tomorrow or next week or the next year in my job or my career or whatever. Jesus is the Lord. But at the same time, I need to be asking Jesus, what do you want me to do? Because you're my Lord, my rightful owner, my exclusive master. So what do you want me to do? What, what, what's next for me, Jesus? Again, he's the Lord. He's not your advisor. He's the Lord. He's not your therapist. He is all those things by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's our, the Holy Spirit is the greatest psychiatrist there ever is. But if he's only those things to you, then, then you're not following the Jesus the Bible talks about. So he's, he's the Lord of my money. He's the Lord of my future. He's the Lord of my career. He's the Lord of my reputation. So that means maybe I need to be thinking about why I'm doing things for the opinions of other people because I don't want to disappoint people. I don't want people to not like me, all right? Fear of others, fear of man is what the Bible calls it. It's a huge motivation that most of us aren't even aware of. 
And even when we are, it's kind of like, well, you know, we just got. But Jesus is Lord of my reputation. Your reputation is his reputation. Jesus is Lord of your marriage, if you're married. Um, so what he says goes, but also in great confidence, he is also the Lord and the shepherd of your marriage. And he has the best intentions for your marriage. Jesus is the Lord of your family, of your children. So when you're anxious about what your kids are getting into or what their future looks like, he's the Lord of that. Which again, backs us off of anxiety and worry and the panic, frenetic activity that we often have because we think we have to control it. Because if he's the Lord, I don't have to control. Right? If Jesus is Lord, I don't need to control anything. Jesus, if Jesus is Lord, then he's the Lord of my future. He's the Lord of my savings account. He's the Lord of my sex life. He's the Lord of my tongue. He's the Lord of about anything you can think of that is your everyday life. And you might think, uh, well, that sounds kind of heavy. Not sure if I want to worship a guy like that. The Lord sounds kind of demanding, slave owner, master owner. The reality is, as a human being, you have somebody who is your master and owner. Maybe it's you. Or maybe it's someone else that you follow. Or Jesus. And I don't know. I remember having a conversation one time on an airplane. Um, I had numerous conversations on the airplane, but one time I had a conversation and this guy was trying to convince me. Uh, his, we we're talking about religion. Somehow we got on. I don't usually strike up those conversations. He kind of struck it up. And he started telling me, he said, but no, Matt, you need to understand. You are God. You are like God. We're all like God. So you can be God. And I just said to him, you don't want me to be God. <laughs> you really don't want me to be God. I said, you don't want me to be God even over my life. Because I don't always know I don't often know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm a limited human being. You don't want me to be Lord of my life. But if we're honest, the reality is, oh, we desperately want to be Lord of our lives. I want to control. I want to tell God what the script of my life should look like. Why doesn't he just cooperate with what I want? Because I know what I think is best for me. Anytime you give into that thinking, even subtly, you're essentially saying, well, Jesus is Lord some of the time, 90%, but I get 10%. I'm 10% Lord. Jesus is Lord 98%, but I get 2%. When it comes to my money, I'm Lord of that. So I'll give Jesus everything else, but that's not what Lord means. Say Jesus is Lord is 100% commitment. It's all in. It's all in. And maybe there's some area of your life, as I know there probably are, and are, I know there are of my life, where there's, I'm happy to give Jesus 98%. And sometimes I don't even know what the extra, I don't even know those areas, but I know there's some areas where I find myself struggling or kind of frustrated with God, even having an argument with God about something. Where I'm really saying is, I'm 95% in on this Jesus is Lord thing but I got to hold on to five because I got to make sure I'm in control of something. Because why? Because God, what if you don't pull through for me? None of us would ever say that out loud because it's like blasphemy, you know, strike me dead, God, you know. But isn't our biggest fear the very fear that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden, which was 
did God really say this to not eat this? Because I think God's probably holding out on you. He doesn't want you to have this. So we, like Adam and Eve, believe the lie that God is holding out on us. And that's why we can't give our, we don't give, we choose not to give our 100% self to God because we're not quite sure he's 100% for us. One of, the, one of my favorite books, and I'll finish with this, favorite books is a book called Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Um, this, both my wife and I have probably read this book, I don't know, n- numerous times. I have like four copies downstairs. This is the one that was beat up the worst. The other ones had pages falling out. But um, A.W. Tozer was a pastor in Chicago in like the 40s and 50s. And he wrote this book actually in a train trip from Chicago to Texas. Wrote it all in one night. But this is how, uh, this is one of the chapters. I used to say that one of these chapters was my favorite chapter, but I, when I read them, they're all, they're all like my favorite chapters. But anyway, this particular chapter, he ends with a prayer, and this is what he says. He talks about the exaltation of Jesus. Oh God, be thou exalted over my possessions. So he kind of used some King James English here. Be thou exalted over my possessions. Nothing of earth's treasure shall seem dear unto me if only thou art glorified in my life. Be thou exalted over my friendships. I am determined that thou shalt be above all, though I must stand deserted and alone in the midst of the earth. Even if I'm abandoned by my friends, I want you, God, exalted over my friendships. Be thou exalted over my comforts. Yeah, let's leave that one out, right? Though it mean the loss of bodily comforts and the carrying of heavy crosses, I shall keep my vow made the day bef- this day before thee. Be thou exalted over my reputation. Make me ambitious to please you, even if as a result I must sink into obscurity and my name be forgotten as a dream. So rise, O Lord, into your proper place of honor, above my ambitions, above my likes and dislikes, above my family, my health, and even my life itself. Let me decrease that you may increase. Let me sink that you may rise. Ride forth upon me as, thou, as you rode into Jerusalem, mounted upon the humble little colt. And let me hear the children cry, Hosanna in the highest. So why would you do this? Why would I do this? Why would you give yourself wholly, 100%, and call this person, Jesus, Lord? And so just in closing, I'm gonna, we're going to read, I'm going to reread the passage, part of the passage here. Go to the next slide. Because when we think of kings and lords and masters, we often have these negative connotations because they're selfish people. And we're not quite sure if in the end they're in it for themselves. But what Paul is communicating to us, to the Philippians, to every single man and woman who's ever read this throughout history is this Lord is different. There's not a selfish bone in his divine body, all right? Here's what he says. Actually, read this out loud with me. This is again talking about Jesus. Here we go. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he emptied himself and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself and obedient to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Stop right there. That's your master. There's nothing about pushing his authority on you. There's nothing about lording his authority over you. There's nothing about you do this because I'm the master. It's all about a leader 
a master, an owner, who by very depth of his nature is all about giving for you and for me. He's one who is absolutely obsessed with abandoning himself for the sake of his people. Not unlike the prodigal son, parable of the prodigal son, where Jesus is telling people, no, this is what God is like. He will come find you because he loves you so much. He will give up himself completely because he loves you so much. And then the question is, why, why would you not follow a master like that? I can't imagine any master you could ever name, including yourself, that would have anything, a fraction to offer of that kind of life. Then we'll finish the passage. Read out loud with me. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Read those last few lines. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We finish every Sunday with communion at Exodus. We, and we do this not simply. It is a ritual. I say that. It is a ritual. But it's not a ritual without meaning. It can be. It can be practiced that way. But there's deep meaning in the ritual. And we do it because we want to end the service always with the elevation of Jesus, because we're not elevating religion, we're not elevating, we're not elevating um, American Christianity, we're not elevating chicken soup for the soul advice, we're not elevating be good people, we're elevating Jesus, because that's why we're here. We're centered around Jesus. He said, this is my body, this is my blood broken and shed for you. When you eat this, every time you eat this and drink this, remember, 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 remember. And what we're supposed to remember is remember what I came to do for you. Again, we tend to think, we've been trained to think because of medieval Christianity, remember how bad it hurt me and remember that it's all your fault. But that's, that's backward thinking because Jesus is not all about himself. He's saying, no, remember, I came to do this for you. I came to do this so you can be free of those habits that enslave you. I came to do this so you can be dead to the selfish, selfish, self-centered ambitions you have. And I did this so you can be fully alive, awake, and free. That's why I did this, is what Jesus said. And when Paul tells us in Philippians, and he's telling people who are struggling in life, the Philippians, arguing with each other, dealing with persecution, he's saying, no, no, if you just keep Jesus as the Lord of your life, 100%, give him all that you know of yourself. Um you will be free. And no matter what happens in life, whether you're in prison in Rome or you're in whatever situation you are, joy can be yours. Because joy comes from that kind of commitment of your heart, not from the circumstances outside of you. Here's how we do it at Exodus. The band's going to come up here. We're going to sing, I think, at least one more song. Um, as we're singing, you're invited to come up. We don't dismiss by rows. We don't check IDs. We don't check church affiliation. All we uh, ask is that if you come up, you're someone who says, I want to give us all that I know of myself to all that I know of Jesus. Standard isn't perfection. The standard isn't having a, a week of no failures. If that were the case, no one would come. The standard is uh, I want to hunger and thirst after more of Jesus in my life. And if that's where you are and you're not giving God the straight arm in some area of your life where you know you're resisting, where, if, where you know you're saying, no, you're not Lord of that part of my life, if you're knowingly saying that, it's wise not to take. Now, we don't check who's up or down. Nobody's going to try to figure out why you didn't come up if you don't come up. 
but that's how we do it. There'll be people at the aisles offering the bread, and then people offering the cup. T- tear off a piece of the bread and then dip it in the cup. This is how we do it here. Most people eat it right away. Some people take it back to their seats and eat it. Your choice how you do that. Jesus, we're grateful. Um, we're grateful that you gave yourself for us and you open up this whole new and living way so we can be alive, awake, and free and full of the life and love that comes from you alone. And we acknowledge, Jesus, that you are Lord and there is no other. And that's because you are our road to being made whole again, for salvation to be made whole, and there's no other way. Only you can do that, and we're grateful, and we ask this all in your name. Amen.